0: Get zero percent interest for 48 months on any replacement project right now at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Our experts complete the installation with no hassle or mess, leaving only perfect results. Schedule your free consultation now at PellaWI.com.
1: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at The Avenue. It's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the WTMJ talk and text line at 855-616-1620.
2: Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. Mike Spaulding, before you go back to the newsroom, did you ever watch uh, the, it was on Fox, that 70s show? You ever yes. watch that? Oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it was set, yeah, It was set in Wisconsin, and mm-hmm. um, it, it ran from '98 till like 2004 or so, mm-hmm. like that, and made stars of Aston Kutcher and um, uh, uh, Topher Grace, whose real name was Christopher Grace, but he called himself Topher Grace, which I thought was kind of clever. In that, anyhow, do you remember the guy that that played Hyde? The the, the his name is Danny Masterson, mm-hmm. who was who was. Like five years older than everybody else, but they pretended they were all classmates and stuff like that. He um, he goes on trial today, three counts of of sexual assault in Los Angeles. It's a it's it's this. He got charged as part of the Me Too era. The charges go back to two thousand one. And there's three women who've come forward to file complaints against him. One was his girlfriend of like five years who said he sexually assaulted her one morning. And then there's two other women who said that he had him come over to their house. And, of course, the overtones of this is he's big into Scientology, and they were all members Mm -hmm. of the, the same church and so you you've got those whole questions there but he's looking at three counts of sexual assault 20 plus years um, each on each count and the allegations this was one of the big me too things the allegations go back again you know 15 20 years
3: yeah the what what's interesting about that one is the ties to the scientology if you've I've ever watched it going clear i think was the the big documentary that was released a couple of years ago right um just about the lengths that the church goes to i again but is protect their members correct is that the the, the right word or right. to discourage people to come forward with negative uh right. allegations against them so that that is a one huge thing which is why i think it took so long for this to come to light Right, and then
2: there's, and they were all. The, the, my at least my understanding is the the women who are now filing complaints were all members of the church as well, and they have a a system in Scientology where if you have a, a disagreement or issues with another member of the church, you're supposed to go through like this church ethics commission or, or something, and and they went through that and were dissatisfied with the results, but it's a real. It, it's. I mean, other than the fact that the guy's a, a celebrity, and you know, or at least a mini celebrity, and, and played in all these different roles and stuff, it, it's interesting to see because again, these allegations are are really, really old. I mean, you know, you you have you you go back twenty years for them, and like I say, in the case of of one of the the women, it was his girlfriend of, of five years, who's alleging there was salt. And I, I take no position on this, but it's kind of getting a lot of attention just because of the Scientology overtones and who Danny Masterson is.
3: Yeah, and, and what, what was alleged, you know what's really weird, too, thinking about it now, is that Mila Kunis was 15 when she started on that. Like, she lied about her age to get on the show, so right. she could, like, work normal hours. And they, like, had, not to spoil that 70s show for anybody, but, like, her character and Danny Masterson's character had, like, a, a little thing in the show, which is even weirder now. Right. And, and of
2: course, she was dating Aston Kutcher yes. as well. And then, you know, then they broke up and now this, this is our People Magazine version of the Wagner <laughs> show. They're, you know, they're they're, they're, they're married, now, right? They're, they're married, right? All those sorts of things. But um, they're also doing a reboot. Netflix, you know, is doing a reboot of that that 70s show. They're calling it that 90s show.
3: They tried that 80s show. Did you ever watch no. that? It no. was bad. Was it? Yeah. I mean, it. yeah. Look You know, when you have something like that 70s show that... That works. It's because of the cast of characters, you know, that that makes it work. And I think they said, "Oh, well, why not do the '80s?" We kind of know where our audience is going to go in the '90s. That would fall almost to my age, so it's like, "Oh, they'll they'll remember that." So, uh, yeah, that '80s show, I would well, not.
2: Recommend. Well, I always related to that '70s show because I was a kid growing up in Wisconsin in in the '70s. Now, you know, I, it's you know, and you could relate to all the different characters that were there and. Um, but I, I, was, I thought it was a well-done show. I think, like so many things, it kind of ran its course. Yeah. You know, after, after a couple of years, you probably told all the stories, and then once they start growing up, it doesn't have the same appeal. But in any event, Danny Masterson goes on trial for three counts of sexual assault today in Los Angeles. Go figure. How the mighty have fallen. Um, let us get started. Oh, first, before that, you know, um, Greg Sports. He was just talking about the, you know, the the game five in the American League playoffs between the New York Yankees and the Cleveland Guardians, formerly the Indians. It was rescheduled from last night. lot of unhappy sports fans in New York City. If you if you weren't watching this, the game was supposed to start at six o'clock our time, and it was raining cats and dogs. And it had been raining for a good portion of the day. It was a truly cold, miserable night. And it was apparent, I think, to a lot of people that that game wasn't going to be able to be played. But Major League Baseball and TBS, the network, they desperately wanted it to be played. And it was like, okay, well, we we keep hoping that maybe there's going to be a window, maybe there's going to be a window. They made fans sit in essentially pouring rain, because, I mean, if you're a New York Yankees fan, I mean, heck, if if, if I'm a Brewers fan and this doesn't happen with Miller Park because we have a roof or American Family Field because we have a roof, but, you know, I mean, I'm going to sit through, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go home you know, and miss Game 5 if there's a chance they're going to play Game 5. The reality was there was no way they were going to play Game 5, but Major League Baseball, in conjunction with the networks, kept delaying and delaying and delaying. And you had fans who, you know, just sat out in the cold and the raw and the wet for hours and hours. And needless to say, uh, the New Yorkers are not happy that that ended up happening. And I think that the general general consensus is Major League Baseball – and the, the networks once again teamed up to kind of mess over the fans. That game is going to uh, first pitch is like at 3 o'clock this afternoon to see whether the Yankees or Cleveland advances. Okay, let's get started. If, if you've been watching the, the TV ads, the, and how can you avoid watching the TV ads or hearing the radio ads as well, you know that there's a couple issues that are that are coming out. If you are a Democrat running for office— there is really just one issue that you are running on, and, and that is abortion. You, the amount of money that has been spent on running abortion ads, um, or in this case, if you're, it's a Republican, he wants to deny your right to an abortion, that you would think is the only issue that, that's out there because the amount of money that's being spent on abortion ads is just in, incredible in an effort to try to make that the one-wedge issue. The problem is that doesn't seem to be working if you look at a lot of the polls. On the other hand, Republicans are running a number of issues. You're, You're seeing inflation, you're seeing schools, and you're seeing crime. And crime is certainly an issue that is coming out in the Wisconsin governor's race. You have the ads about Tony Evers and Kenosha. You have the ads about how crime is just kind of out of control And one of the arguments that's now being made is, hey, those ads are misleading. Crime really isn't as bad as, I don't know, some of those ads would have you believe. I want to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to go behind the scenes of the crime numbers. And then I have a provocative why question for you. All right. So you see a lot of abortion ads. You see a lot of crime ads. What is – what's really the truth behind the crime ads? And it's kind of interesting. There's a report that the Badger Institute did a week or two ago that I think it it's worth looking at the numbers because when you see all these crime ads – the question is, okay, is this being overblown? Is this being overplayed? There, there's no question. I mean, Tony Evers is on record as saying he wants to reduce the Wisconsin prison population by half, and the only way you do that is either by releasing people that are in prison or not sending people to prison. That, that is the Evers approach. There, there's no question about it. The question becomes, does that work or not work? Well, here's the, sort of the reality. There's, um, there's really two states in Wisconsin. There is most of the state— where crime is stable or maybe being reduced. And then there's southeastern Wisconsin in general and Milwaukee in particular. Here's what the Badger Institute finds. I'll give you the numbers in just a second. The big picture is that Wisconsin remains, on the whole, a safe place that's been getting safer— but Wisconsinites who live and work in our largest city, Milwaukee, suffer worsening deprivations from criminals, particularly in homicide, auto theft, and aggravated assault, which includes shooting. And for some specific offenses, especially auto theft and homicide, other cities in Wisconsin are seeing a worsening trend, sometimes dramatically worse. Meanwhile, arrests are falling, meaning that offenders, more offenders, face little or no accountability. Um, You know, here's just a couple of the findings of this particular report. With approximately 10% of the state's population, the city of Milwaukee accounted for an outsized share of total crime volume in 2021, 60% of the homicides, 53% of aggravated assaults, and 68% of auto thefts. Let me say that again. All right, city of Milwaukee, 10% of the state's population Sixty percent of the murders, 53 percent of the aggravated assaults, 68 percent of the auto thefts. Um, So you have, and no matter how you look at the numbers, you know, that's that's where what you see. Um, The homicides, 194 last year versus a total of 127 everywhere else in the state. Just let that sink in for a minute. Almost 200, and we're going to top 200 homicides this year in the city of Milwaukee, 127 everywhere else. That means a city with only 10% of the state's population had 60% of the state's homicides in 2021. Madison, the state's second largest city with a population of 269,000, about half as large as Milwaukee, had 10 homicides. Ten. Ten in Milwaukee and uh, ten in Madison which is about half the size of Milwaukee and over 200 in Milwaukee. You, you get to see, you know, where these numbers are going. And it doesn't matter what category that you want to, you know, look at auto thefts. I mean, just spiked dramatically auto thefts up two hundred and fifty five percent over the last couple years. And, and while cars are being stolen all over the state, they're being stolen in disproportionate large numbers in in Milwaukee. There's just no question about it. When you look at the crime numbers, it it comes down to one thing, and that is that it's it's largely a problem that exists in southeastern Wisconsin. If you look at the number of crimes that are being solved on top of that, you know, they're dramatically down as well. It used to be if there was a homicide in the city of Milwaukee, that, that homicide would be would be cleared. It just, that's how it worked out. Nowadays, um, not so much at all, simply because there's so many homicides that are out there. It's just that they can't keep up. They just cannot keep up with trying to clear the murders. So if you commit a murder, your your chances of getting away with that are dramatically greater. If you steal a car, well, there's little or no chance that you're going to be caught unless you're fleeing from the cops and you drive that car through an intersection and hit and kill somebody. Otherwise, your chances of being caught are slim to none. But when you look at the crime problem, the one thing that becomes clear is, while crime is an issue across the rest of the state— It is an issue particularly in Milwaukee County and in the city of Milwaukee. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. I mean, here's my question. Why? Why is it so bad in Milwaukee in comparison to the rest of the state? And we have other urban areas I mean, you've got the city of Racine, you've got the city of Kenosha, you've got Green Bay, you've got Sheboygan, you've got La Crosse, you've got Madison, as we've already talked about. I mean, you have other urban areas, um, but you you don't have anywhere near the state from a statistical basis, you don't have anywhere near the crime problem that you have in the city of Milwaukee in particular, but in Milwaukee County in general, a lot of reason because, of course, in the city of Milwaukee, the criminals sort of spread out into the suburbs for things like auto theft and stuff like that. But my question is, why is it so bad in southeastern Wisconsin in general? What's going on in Milwaukee that's not going on in the rest of the state? You 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 know, you you have poverty. I mean, if, if you want to look at socioeconomic things, I mean there, there's other areas of the state where you have pockets of, of again, you know, people that, that don't necessarily have the means, but it's not manifesting itself with crime. So so what's going on? How did it get that bad? I have some theories, but I'd like to hear yours as well. 855-616-1620, we discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is WTMJ Talk and Text Line. Here, here's one of the dazzling details about this. Um, Milwaukee has an incredibly low arrest to offense ratio. These are the numbers of cases where the police actually make an arrest. Get this, um, only 24 arrests per 100 violent offenses um, were made in 2021 so if you are if for every hundred violent offenses that are committed they're only able to arrest one quarter of the people that that did it now who how many of those end up getting prosecuted who knows Milwaukee police made arrests in fewer than half the homicides in 2021 okay almost 200 murders in 2021 almost 200 and they made arrests in 88. Um, You know, they they made fewer than half of the people who were – fewer than half of the people who were involved in committing crimes, murders, were were absolutely – were arrested. And so you're starting to see, I think, one of the things – that's going on, the reflection of the fact that from a law enforcement perspective, people are just absolutely overwhelmed. Jeff, crime is out of control nationwide. The woke approach to governing criminals that John Chisholm has put in place has completely failed. Innocent people are being victimized because of it. Perfect example is Daryl Brooks. If he was locked up like he should have been, 60 plus people would not have been victimized because it would never have happened. Um yeah that's I think there's certainly an element Jeff I believe the problem is leadership from the top down Jeff it's a no brainer um Milwaukee has the largest population in the state and we have the greatest number of people who are problem people uh, I don't know what but I guess the question is why why is that Why is that the case? Um, Jeff, I think the Democratic mayor of Milwaukee isn't backing the police the way he should so they can do their job. Um, Other people might have done a better job. Maybe, maybe not. All right. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is a WTMJ talk and text line. I want to pick it up right there. My question is, why is this going on? Because if we don't address the why, we're never going to make it better. 855-616-1620, 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Vincent. Vincent, good afternoon.
4: Um, yeah, to answer your question, you know, uh, uh, no pun intended, uh, Milwaukee is the largest stick in the state, which means it has the largest population in the state, which brings about the uh, largest concentration of uh, population in the state, which, which basically brings about the largest problems. When you see this around the country, That's where you see the most most concentration of crime is in the larger cities. You took St. Louis. Let me me
2: stop you for a second. OK, Madison has approximately half the population, give or take. Ten murders compared to 200 in Milwaukee. So, I mean, it's it's not just, you know, the the population. I mean, the, the percentage is stunning in that regard.
4: But, but still, they're half the population, and their concentration of people people on top of each other you know when you look at the the, the, the amount of, of 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 let's say land compared to the number of people that are on the land, the concentration of people are on top of each other in Milwaukee but certainly, there are other problems that come with that. The fact is is when you have an uneducated population well uh the fact is when you have an influx of individuals who come up here from Illinois. Uh, things of that sort. When you have, uh, the fact is is that, uh, 70% of the, uh, births in this, co- in this state, uh, are born to single parents. The fact is there are a myriad of issues that come with the fact is, come with the fact that Milwaukee is just, uh, the concentration of, of things are here in Milwaukee. And so, when you have those things that kind of piled on top of each other, and and not being solved, yeah, you, you begin to have this large crime problem. But it's but but like I say, it's around the country, in this, and the and you can see the same thing mirrored in other uh, uh, cities around the country that are basically about the same size as Milwaukee, and so. So, so, so certainly, in you know, order to solve the problem, you have to try to deal with all those under, underlying issues that deal with the, the population, the large population, the concentration of population in this city. But uh, uh, that's that's why you have crime. It's 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 a simple thing. But the point is, is, is how do you solve it?
2: Got it. Well, Vincent, I, th- thanks for the call. I mean, I, I see. I don't necessarily buy the idea that that's that's why you have have crime. At least not in the proportions that we do, because, yeah, I mean, I appreciate you have more people that are concentrated in the city of Milwaukee, and I appreciate you have people coming up from Illinois, although I, I don't know that that's really where the the crime problem ends up being. I mean, and look, and I, I understand that whenever you have some of these socioeconomic things, and by the way, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think— the the lack of two parent households, and that's not a knock on single parent families. But let's face it; I mean, it, it's easier it's easier to raise kids if you've got two committed parents, and I, I think that that's just a, a factor that, that's there. And if you have parents that are punched out and just aren't paying any attention, or they've got their own issues, I, I agree with you. And we're going to talk about this later in the program that the school system is is a huge function because you know if if people are committed. And I think this goes back to the parents as well. If people are committed to getting educations and things of the like, um, that if they're in school and the school system is working and they feel that there's like a chance and they're advancing, they're, they're less likely to be out on the street looking for cars to steal or for people to carjack or things of the like. And so I appreciate that there's some degree of social economic thing that goes into this at the same time. I think what we also and by the way I'm getting some texts that are, are are trying to racialize this and i i'm I resist that i i don't that's that's not the that's not the answer to the question the the because you know you you have all sorts of communities where um you you have crime that is prevalent in different areas and and I think it it's way too simplistic and way unfair to just simply say well there's you know this concentration of people live here and that's why there's the crime no it that that's that's not what it, that's not what it is, I don't believe, and I don't believe that that's how that you, you end up dealing with it. Now, for me, I, I think it starts with what I would describe as this lack of accountability that, that's, that's out there, and that is for years and years and years, we have had this basic approach that we don't want to hold people accountable. We don't want to put people in jail we want to try to find alternatives. You have a district attorney that has, in my opinion, been a complete and total failure. He announced that this was his pro what his program was going to be. We're going to try to do everything we possibly can to not put people in jail. And we now know that that just flat out doesn't work. It's like what happened years ago When uh, Tom Barrett, when he was the mayor, came up with this just cockamamie scheme to, in most cases, not have the police chase. All right. I I understood because he was concerned that he had a couple instances where people, innocent third parties, got in the way of the chase and they end up getting hurt or killed. And I I appreciate what what was behind this. But all that did was embolden the bad guys to just run from police. And that led to, I I think, the rolling drug houses that knew that, you know, if they tried to run from the cops, they wouldn't be pulled over, the reckless driving, the car thefts. And we've never gotten a handle on it. So, I mean, I think what we're seeing and we know we're reaping what we sowed. This idea that you know you have people out there who just know that they're not going to be held accountable, and see this is my part of my concern in these upcoming elections you You have for example, candidates that are talking about wanting to put more money into Milwaukee when it comes to criminal justice okay I, that, that that all sounds good I'm in favor of more cops on the street i'm in favor of more prosecutors. But the problem is, if the prosecutors are going to have this attitude that— we're not going to hold people accountable, and we're, we're going to follow the Chisholm dictates. But you, you can put in another hundred prosecutors, and it's not going to make a difference. If the prosecutors are going to be like the Tony Evers type of, here, our, our philosophy is we don't want to send people to prison, well, why, why, have, why have judges then? If it's just going to be, you know, why, if we're going to have more and more people that are going to be put on probation or double-secret probation, if there's not going to be a degree of accountability, well, why bother with all this? You're, you're just... Just not going to solve the underlying problem. To me, it starts with accountability, and and that's the first step. I mean, when I look at these clearance rates, that the fact that you know one out of every two homicides goes essentially unsolved, that that's that's appalling. If you look at the car thefts, it's about one in ten people actually get caught for there's if there's a thousand cars that are stolen, they might catch a hundred. One in ten and then we don't even ask what happens to the people you know once they're they're are they charged in the system are they you know told not to do it again and put back on the street but I think to me it starts with this lack of accountability and until we change that, I don't think you're gonna see much, if any difference John oh, lost John John on the north side um eight five five six one six one six twenty. Um, watching the Kia Boys documentary, you saw one adult who stood up and said, I tell them to stop, and every adult said, be careful out there. It's come to mentors. When I grew up, everybody in the neighborhood was a mentor. If the neighborhood approves, it's not going to change. Jeff, you never mentioned prison overcrowding. Where would you put another prison? I I mention it all the time. Build the jails. Build the prisons. (laughs) I think, you know, most taxpayers... Would say, all right. If we need more prison space, would you support being a pri- if would you support your tax dollars going to build prisons if it is going to get dangerous people off the street? And my guess is, eighty five to ninety percent of the people would say, absolutely yes, that they would, you know, you know, do it, Jeff. Um, you know, every, you know. Kids in Mequon and Delafield aren't committing all the homicides in the city of Milwaukee, right? That's the thing. And again, I'm not I'm not racializing this. Some of the texters want to, but th- this is this is the issue that's out there. It's not just the property crimes. It's not just the thefts. But it's the it's the murders that are going on, and the murders affect you know people throughout this community. Whether it's you know um, Hispanic crime or black crime or white crime, I mean, it affects. Everybody that's out there, and I think a lot of it comes back to the lack of accountability you know, that's out there. Now, some people are saying that they think that a lot of the crime is due to the fact that you've got people coming in from out of state. Well, I, I don't know. I think you've got a lot of juveniles that are out there stealing cars right and left, and they know it's wrong to steal the cars. I mean, this is not this is not sort of rocket science. They know it's wrong to steal the cars, but why do they do it? They do it because it's fun, at least in their minds. They do it because they don't care what they do to other people. That's why they not only steal the cars, but they drive away at high rates of speed. And they know that there's very little that is going to be done to them unless and until we change that. I just don't see that's going to happen. So, I mean, I know some people are out there thinking, well, these anti-crime ads they're running against Tony Evers are unfair. I'm sorry, I don't buy that because what we need is a sea change of attitudes. We need to completely revamp the juvenile justice system to recognize that, Things are different now than when they first drafted the Juvenile Justice Code. You've got hardcore criminals at the age of 14 and 15 who are out there committing serious crimes and will continue to commit serious crimes until they are dealt with. And hopefully you catch them early, you teach them that there's consequences, and they don't repeat that. Hopefully. Now, is that going to work for everybody? No. But if you at least have consequences, that means they're going to be less likely to at least be out on the street to steal cars from decent people or carjack people or things of the like. So you need a reform of the juvenile justice system. You need a governor that is going to appoint judges who are committed to putting people in prison when they deserve that. You need a governor who is committed to having a parole board that's not going to be releasing dangerous criminals um, simply because it is fashionable to do that, yet you need to go back to some accountability. And by the way, as we're going to talk about in a little bit, I think you have to look at some of the underlying causes. You know, how how do you get more good-paying jobs into a community? How do you improve the school system so people don't have this inclination just to to bail on it and run the streets at the age of 14 instead of being where they're supposed to be in school. These are all sorts of factors, but to me, it starts with accountability. And if you look at these numbers, they're just truly staggering. And I guess it is fair to say statewide, I mean, crime is relatively stable. At the same time, in the largest city in the state, it's out of control And that's where the dialogue needs to be. Hey, Wisconsin, can you feel it? It's getting colder outside, which means it's the second last week for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase presented by Great Midwest Bank. This week, we are featuring Kohler Services. You can visit their website at Kohlerserviceswi.com to find out more. It's the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase on Wisconsin's radio station six twenty WTMJ. Now, I, I do think you know one of the things to follow up to our previous conversation. I mean, it is fair to say, okay, we're Jeff. The things you're talking about, it's it's going to cost money. You know, you you want to have more prosecutors, you want to have more police officers, you want to have more judges. Now, I, I want to have more prosecutors and more judges. Now, I want the right type of, of judges. I want the right type of prosecutors. I don't want judges that are committed to. Well, we want to figure. out out ways to not send people to prison. I want to find judges that are going to, in fact, hold people accountable. I don't want to have more prosecutors that are designed to, okay, here, we'll just, we'll, we'll shove people through the system and we'll get them out on probation or double-secret probation or no prosecution. We won't prosecute cases, but we'll, just so we can say we've cleared these things without holding them accountable. So I, I want... I want more prosecutors. I want more judges, but I want the right type of prosecutors and certainly the right type of judges, or else it's not going to make any difference. And that's one of the reasons why I think the governor's race is important. But, you know, I do appreciate that this all costs money. And this was a little known story that's out there. It was announced about two weeks ago, but the city of Milwaukee, its credit rating has been cut. All three rating agencies. Um, apparently have have a negative outlook on the city of Milwaukee. And so what happens is when your your credit rating gets downgraded, what happens is it costs more for you to borrow money. And it's like, you know, Brian Wickard says in the, the advertising, you know, you can get a certain rate, for a mortgage, if you've got, you know, this much money down and you've got all the right stuff. Well, if you don't have all the right stuff, you're not going to be able to get the best ratings. Um, Moody's, which is one of the big credit rating things, uh, Moody's downgraded the city's credit rating in the past decade, and it's done it four separate times Um dropping the credit rating. So that means it's more difficult, again, to borrow money, and the cost of borrowing is is greater. So there's no question in my mind that if you're going to help the city of Milwaukee start to bail itself out from the crime problem, what you need to do is you need an influx of money from the state. It is fair, I think, for the state legislature to say, okay, what's, what's going to happen if we give you more money? recognizing that the prime problem in the largest city in the state is essentially out of control. If we figure out a way to give you more money, what are are you going to do with it? Are you going to spend the money on an office of, quote-unquote, violence prevention, which sounds really good but has accomplished absolutely nothing? Or are you going to put cops on the street? If we increase the number of judges, for example, they work for the state, that are in Milwaukee County, all right, what, what's, what's going to happen? Okay, we can increase the number of courts, we can get more prosecutors there, we can get more police that are there, but what is going to happen? What's going to make us believe that this is going to be different? Will those people come in and hold folks accountable? Because if they won't hold folks accountable, there's no sense in just throwing money at the problem, which too often has been the Response, oh, give us more money. Well, no, if you don't spend the money wisely, it is absolutely pointless. Hey, an update on, on something we talked about last week the jury. In the Parkland school shooting, uh, Nicholas Cruz, who, of course, was the guy that that walked in and murdered 17 people in Parkland, Florida, um, he he was convicted. And then they they had a trial. The way it works in Florida is the trial on, on the death penalty is that it has to be unanimous for the death penalty. In other words, if there's one member of the 12-person jury who says, I I won't support the death penalty, then there's no death penalty. See, in regular jury trials, criminal jury trials, the verdict has to be unanimous one way or the other. All 12 have to agree guilty, all 12 have to agree not guilty, or else it's a hung jury. That's not the way it works in death penalty cases. It has to be everybody, so all you need is one holdout. And that's apparently what happened. If if you've been following this, a number of the victims, the word I would use is disgusted. They were absolutely disgusted that you have somebody can go in, kill 17 people, um, and and essentially avoid the death penalty because, well, his mother drank and his step-parents were kind of lousy step-parents and used that as some justification. But now a number of the jurors who are equally disgusted, they said there, there was just one juror who pretty much from the beginning was adamant that they were I think it was a woman that she was not going to vote for the death penalty which makes you kind of wonder what what she's doing how she got on that jury in the first place but the the ultimate verdict I think was I mean it, it was no death penalty but at least 9 or 10 of the jurors were convinced that the death penalty was the appropriate penalty in that particular case. And essentially, there was one woman who just said, I refuse to go along with this. We can talk until you know what freezes over. I'm never going to support imposing the death penalty. And as a result, I think it's very, very clear that justice was not done. Maybe what they really need to do is look at— re-look at how you decide when you impose the death penalty because if one juror can hold this up seems to me there's something wrong with that when we come back he was there on january 6th should he be in congress next january i'll explain we'll discuss
1: live from the annex wealth management studios at the avenue it's the jeff wagner show now here's wtmj's jeff wagner
2: good afternoon wisconsin welcome back to the show it is in wisconsin it is very rare that you see congressional seats switch parties that's because in in wisconsin geographically the vast majority of the state is republican um the there are two areas a milwaukee county and Dane County that are are heavily democratic. And so for congressional districts, for example, you know Gwen Moore who represents the Milwaukee County essentially, one of the most democrat leaning districts in the country. You know a Republican is simply not going to get uh, elected in, there. I mean it's just not going to happen. Now the Republican party always like puts up, you know candidates and stuff, but it it's it's not going to happen. Similarly, out in Madison, you have a congressional seat which is held by um by Congressman Pokan. You know, that's that's if anything, it's even more heavily Democratic than Milwaukee. So those two seats are are just locked in and, and there's not gonna be any switchover with them. Um, The same thing is true for many of the other seats throughout the the state that are in areas which geographically are heavily Republican. So Wisconsin has eight congressional seats. Right now, you've got five that are held by Republicans. You've got three that are held by Democrats. Something unprecedented—well, I don't want to say unprecedented, but something relatively unusual is scheduled to happen three weeks from today— and that is the seat in western Wisconsin. So you're talking about think about the La Crosse area, the Eau Claire area and and down. Southwestern Wisconsin. That seat has been held by a Democrat, Ron Kind, since 1997. It's also a district, a congressional district that was carried by Donald Trump both in 2016 and in 2020. So it is a Republican leaning district, but but Ron Kind, a Democrat, I think in part because the fact that he was known to voters and things like that, you know, he's been able to hold the seat. Kind is stepping down. He is retiring. And so what's going on is you have a Democrat, Brad Path. I think that's how you pronounce his name, who's – He's the state senator from one of the areas out there since twenty twenty and he he worked for Ron Kind and he worked for Herb Cole and he um you know held a couple other he was hired by a couple, you know, for for government sort of jobs and he's been the state senator there since twenty twenty. He is running against a former Navy SEAL named Derek Van Orden and by all accounts this this is going to be a seat. This is going to be a pickup. Van Orden is going to win, and I think both Democrats and Republicans will tell you that it's, it's probably not even going to be close. Um, tons of money have poured in in support of Van Orden. Um, I, I haven't seen the public polls that are out there. I'm told that there's private polls that show, again, that unless— something like really weird happens, that this is going to be a pickup, and it's it's not going to be particularly close. And if one of the ways you have of handicapping races is to follow the money, you know, okay, if, if because what, what ends up happening, and I predict this is going to happen in the Barnes-Johnson race, is if you, money is finite. There's, there's only so much money to go around, and what happens is the smart money, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, they start saying, OK, we want to win races. And so if you get to a certain point where you look at it and you say, OK, this, this race is no longer winnable, well, then what happens is you take the money that maybe you had planned on investing in that race, buying tea bads or whatever, and you shift it. And you find another race that maybe that that money can make a difference in. Hey, you've you've got a million dollars that's out there. All right, do you continue to spend the million dollars on a campaign where the candidate isn't going to win, or do you shift it somewhere else where maybe that million dollars, that extra bump in TV advertising or radio advertising or whatever can make a big difference? Well, in in this race out in the western part of the state for Congress— um the, the democrat has has never generated any sort of significant money always been outspent and never really been able to i, I don't light a fire under his candidacy and now again you, you never know what's going to happen 3 weeks from today but all the smart money seems to suggest that van orden the republican is going to be elected and this is going to be you know a, a pickup for the Republicans in the state of Wisconsin. And, you know, again, a lot of smart money thinks that the Republicans are going to take control of the the House, and this would be one of those seats that you would need to end up doing it. So against all the issues that are out there, inflation and crime and things like that, the issue that the Democrats are trying to raise, and it's pretty much the only issue that's out there, is that, January 6th. Remember, January 6th of 2021, you had the insurrection, the riot, the disturbance, the people storming the Capitol, right? you can use whatever term you want with it. As I've said before, I think it was completely and totally inappropriate. I think the people who were responsible for it and went into the Capitol, you know, need to be prosecuted, all right? So what does this have to do with the guy who's running for Congress? Well, Van Orden was there. He was in D.C., on January 6th, and apparently he attended, you know, one of, you know, there was a speech that President Trump gave and things like that. He he was at the, the speech. Um, nobody alleges that he went into the Capitol. Nobody alleges that he marched into the Capitol. Nobody alleges that he marched to the Capitol. But he was in D.C. as part of this larger rally. This is now the issue that's being raised. Well, you know, we, we, we can't vote for him because— He was in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, and he attended that rally. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. Seems to me that this is grasping at straws. Now, I understand, you know, it's one thing if somebody— I don't know, was charged with a crime for storming into the Capitol. It's one thing if somebody encouraged other people to storm into the Capitol. It's one thing if somebody assaulted some of those Capitol police officers. I, I understand all that, and that's why I'm, I'm, I've never defended that conduct. But this argument now is the mere fact that you were there at in D.C. at, at the original rallies and things like that, that that should— somehow be disqualifying if you run for Congress. Now, it's interesting because this has been the subject of some TV ads out there, and it appears that it's getting absolutely no traction. People who support the Democrat are saying... Well, it's it's not because of that. It's because, you know, we're concerned the Republican might cut social security. And as far as anybody else, they're going, "Well, no, we this this just with all the other issues that are out there, this one isn't resonating." 8556161620. Should it be disqualifying? Should you not be able to run for Congress? Should you not be elected to Congress if you were in Washington D.C. on January 6th? All the smart money seems to think that the Republicans are going to pick up the Ron Kine congressional seat out in southwestern Wisconsin. There's the Democrat candidate has been remarkably underfunded, and the Democrats appear to be saying, okay, we're, we're not going to be able to beat the guy. Um, it's a district that Trump carried in 2016 and 2020. But the issue that has emerged, it's always been kind of under the surface, but now it's the one TV ad that's being attacked is that Van Orden, the, the guy, he who's running as a Republican, he was in D.C. and may have attended, you know, some of those rallies that they had on January 6th. Nobody alleges that he stormed the capitol. Nobody went alleges he went into the capitol or assaulted police. As near as I can tell, he he was there. He attended the rally. All right. 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ Talk and Text line. Is have we reached the point where this is this is disqualifying attending that rally, which by the way, thousands and thousands and thousands of people did the vast majority of whom never stormed the Capitol, never assaulted anybody, and I'm not condoning the people that did, but this idea that, well, he was at the Capitol. Should that be a reason that disqualifies him from Congress? Because that appears to be what the suggestion is. Let's talk to Danny in Janesville. Danny, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? Good. Okay. Should this disqualify him? I mean, this is the big issue. He was there on January 16th. January 6th. Well, so...
0: Well, so what? He showered and shaved that morning, too, as I'm sure Trump did. You know, that it's getting ridiculous where all that sounds like to me is just an attack on basically a soundbite where people are saying, OK, January 6th, and so immediately everybody thinks, oh, the insurrection. And OK, he was in town. He was at a, a rally. Mm-hmm. Big, fat, hairy deal. <laughs> now, I'm saying that and I'm not even, you know, I'm not a Trump supporter by any means whatsoever, it doesn't matter. The guy supported Trump. Okay, of course, he's a Republican. Fine. Okay. They're not going to say anything bad about him because he's a veteran. Of course. You know, that would be
2: totally verbal. Right, Navy SEALs, yeah.
0: Yep. But here they're trying to tie him to January 6th when he has no tie whatsoever. And like I said, they, they just keep adding that word Trump, and they add January 6th, and all of a sudden people... Well, just, well know, there's too many people that are frankly dumb enough to just sit there and go, oh, well, I don't want to vote for that guy.
2: Well, Danny, I mean, you're, you're actually thanks to call. You're, you're actually kind of on to something here because this is OK. For the last three elections, 2016, 2018, 2020, what you've had is you've had a lot of candidates and a lot of campaigns and it hasn't been as much about the candidate themselves. It's been about Donald Trump. You know, cause Trump was on the ballot in twenty sixteen um in twenty eighteen. Trump wasn't on the ballot, but I you will. I firmly believe that what happened is you, you had a lot, let's take Wisconsin, you had a lot of people who were very, very upset with Trump, and so they were motivated to go out and vote against anybody who had an R after their name. I think that was the principal reason why Tony Evers beat Scott Walker. It was just sort of the, we hate Trump and we're motivated to go out and vote, and so we're going to vote against anybody that got enough people out of Madison and enough people out of Milwaukee to, to do that. So that's, and then 20 2020, of course, played out when Donald Trump was on the ballot. This is the first time in the last three elections that Trump hasn't been on the ballot and Trump's been out of power for the last two years. So I think what's happening is you've got this playbook that's there saying, okay, we can't run on inflation. We can't run on crime. We can't run on the border. We can't run on the economy. So what what do we need to do? Well, okay, let's go back to the tried and true. Let's run on on Trump. I mean, let's let's run on Trump. So you get the argument that, okay, you know, here he he was a Trump supporter. Well, yeah, he was a Trump supporter. There's no question about that. So, okay, now— Trump's not on the ballot anymore, but we're going to—we can't just say, oh, he's a Trump supporter, because that's not going to go anywhere, because Trump won the district in 2016 and 2020. So we now have to take that next step, and we have to say, all right, he's not just a Trump supporter, but he was actually in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. Well, like I say, thousands and thousands and thousands of people were in D.C. on January 6th attending the rally. Some of those people who attended the rally, behaved in an illegal fashion and deserved to be prosecuted. This, to me, is like saying everybody who went to Kenosha, for example, to engage in some of the protests that they had, every one of those people is responsible for the, the arsons and the looting and the rioting that occurred. And, I mean, I, I reject that I reject that as well. The number of people, and you can argue about in Kenosha whether Governor Evers' response was appropriate, you can argue about whether, you know, he ended up making the thing worse, all, all that stuff is fair game. But I would never be the one to argue that, hey, you know, you went down to Kenosha, you intended to, to march, and you intended to protest what you thought was an example of police misconduct, and—, and you, you went home or, you know, you weren't part of throwing the firebombs or bombing anything. That, that's to say, OK, well, because, you know, you went there to protest, you're not one that should be allowed to you know, run for office or whatever. No. Now, I understand that there's going to be you know, some people who say, OK, well, this guy, you know, he's a fan of Donald Trump and I'm going to vote for anybody that's ever endorsed Donald Trump. OK, that that's fair. Then run those ads. I'm just saying this idea that we're now desperate enough to say, well, he was there on January 6th, so that in and of itself should be disqualifying. I I don't think that's a winning strategy. By the way, I think that there's a lot of people who agree with me because you will notice. There was a story about this in the New York Times the other day. If if you look at the the ads that are being run and – they're, they're sort of national ads. Every Republican in the country is having ads run against them saying they want to deny people abortion rights, right? That, that's it. Obviously, there is this thinking that abortion might move the needle on voters. Now, I think that that's overblown, but we'll, we'll know in three weeks. You will notice there are very, very few January 6th ads very, very few, and I think that's why, because I think most people are thinking, well, okay, my elected representative, um, unless they storm the Capitol themselves, unless they assaulted, you know, a Capitol police officer, this, I might not have liked what happened on January 6th, but I, I care more about the economy, I care more about the border, I care more about fill-in-the-blank, and that's why you see very, very few January 6th ads. If this, if this is the strategy my guess is Van Orden wins big um, come three weeks from now. Well, my guess is that is that. A couple of times on this program, we've talked about, if you will remember, there's been this proposal by, by Live Nation, which is the, the big the big booking operation, they they book events for Summerfest, they book events for Alpine Valley, and what they want to do is they want to get into the Milwaukee market. So originally what happened is they were looking to build a concert venue down by Summerfest, and what what's really been going on is you have some of the existing concert venues, they, they just don't want the competition, and, and they'll, they'll be honest about it. They just they, they think that Live Nation has more booking power than they have, and that if if you let them come in... The acts that are playing at some of these other venues will just absolutely dry up. My point has always been: I'm 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 a competition guy. I mean, I I don't say that you can't have Walmart in because, well, you can't have Walmart because it might put a local hardware store out of business. Now, at some point in time, if it turns out that there's antitrust violations or something like that, then then you deal with it. But we're not there now. So anyhow, this the group of essentially some of the local businesses and some neighbors got together and they were able to. Kill the deal in on the Summerfest grounds because I I don't know of of issues with regard to land use or things like that. So in the category of be careful what you wish for, this Live Nation group they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. They they partnered with the Milwaukee Bucks and they're going to build their concert venue. Same sort of concert venue, but it's going to be on the site of the, the old Bradley Center. So it's right in the heart of the Deer District. Well, the, these groups have been trying to mobilize the Common Council to oppose this, and um, the Common Council gave preliminary approval to the Bucks to go ahead with this proposal. And then in what was, I think, the final nail in the coffin of the, the groups that opposed it, um, Live Nation and the Bucks announced that here, here's the deal, this venue— is going to be um, exclusively. It's going to. We're going to get a labor ag- agreement. It's going to be constructed by union workers. It's going to be staffed by union workers. This is going to be this union project. And and once you effectively did that, any resistance that there is on the common council pretty much goes out the window because you've got the powerful labor unions in town who are now saying, "Wait a second, members of the common council." You're going to vote against this, which is anti-competitive to begin with, but you're going to deny us all these good union-paying jobs? I I don't think so. So I I think that once they made the announcement that this facility is going to be built with union workers and staffed by union workers, you you pretty much guarantee it's a fait accompli that it's going to happen. And the truth is— it, it should happen, but the lesson is to some of the opponents, the folks who are fighting it down by being by Summerfest, be careful what you wish for because it's going to be built, and if anything, it's going to be built in a more attractive spot right next to the uh, arena. Thanks so much for joining me. If they rebuild it, would you buy Now, I I think if you're a regular listener, you know that we have, i have got a second, I got a condo down in Florida, right? It's in Lee County. It's about a mile off of the Gulf. It was in in Lee County was, you know, the area where you had just an intense flooding. We were extremely lucky. Um, The community I live in has like 65 neighborhoods. A couple of them got hit really hard. Our particular neighborhood, lots of water in there. But I I don't – no water in any of the units. So we had no water in the unit with the exception of our place, um, a little bit of water in the garage, not enough to damage the car I had down there. And I think the the report I heard was – you know, we, we had the power wash, the garage, and disinfect it, and then there's a, uh, some particle board cabinets that have to be pulled out, and just a little tiny bit of drywall. So we we were very, very fortunate. I mean, minimal, minimal damage. But some people lost it all. And if if you're familiar with that area, if you've been in the Naples and the Fort Myers area, you know that there, there's all this beachfront property, and there's all these different, you know, homes. And I have a number of, of friends and who, I mean, I haven't been down there, I'm going down there in mid-November, but uh, who just tell me it looks like Berlin after the bombs fell, you know, in 1945 or whatever. It's just, the, there's just properties that were on the beach that had been there for years and years and years that are, that are just gone. I mean, flat out gone. There were restaurants that if you vacationed to that area, they're, they're just gone. Um, pretty much anything, I don't know, within like a half a mile or more from the beach, it's just, it's gone. And, uh, lots of people, even if you're a little bit inland, it was really very, very hit and miss with the storm surge and the wind. And I mean, I know some people who just, I mean, lost everything. I, I mean, just, just kind of lost everything. And there, you know, there's some people have flood insurance. A lot don't because it's so very, very expensive. But even if you have flood insurance, it's only going to cover like a, a portion of of what the losses are. And because whether it's climate change or whatever, you, you know that this can can happen again. Florida gets hit with hurricanes, just like um, you know other parts of the country get hit with mudslides or fires or or whatever. But it's it's a it's a factor. Now it's not a factor for me because. I, you know, again, we, we came through this unscathed for all intents and purposes. I'm, we're, we're very blessed with that. But I, I know that there's a lot of people that just, again, like I say, lo- lost everything um, down there. And now they're faced with the question of, you know, are are they going to rebuild or do you try to sell? There's a story in the Wall Street Journal today about how th- there's, oh, I, I, I don't. I don't know what the right word is for this, but there's all sorts of of people who are already driving through some of these just like devastated neighborhoods and they're offering to buy the distressed properties. And maybe if it was a property that was worth a million dollars beforehand and that's not my property take it from me but a property that was worth maybe if if before the hurricane if you had at the height of the real estate market last year been trying to buy this property it would be a million bucks well they're driving through this saying tell they're looking at the owners and they're saying tell you what i'll give you 600,000 and i'll you know and then you can just walk walk away from this i'll give you 600 grand and i will take the responsibility for doing it and they're making these offers based on their belief that there is still going to be a demand, for example, for people from Wisconsin who have the means to be able to do it or when it comes time to retire, that there's still... Even after this hurricane and even knowing that there could be more hurricanes, that they're going to be willing to, I don't know, relocate down in in southwest Florida or, you know, in the Tampa area or or the Miami area or whatever. But in particular, right now, this is it. The housing market is such that people are saying, well, we think we can get a deal on distressed properties because we think that there is going to be a demand. We'll rebuild and then we'll put them on the market and we'll make a bunch of money. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ Talk and Text line. See now I've been having this conversation with many people, I mean who who I know who live in that particular area, some whom were like seasonal residents living up here for most of the year and then going down there, some who have been Florida residents forever. And that's been my question. It's like, okay, are are you are you going to rebuild or has the fact that this hurricane hit, have you just had enough of that, are you looking to bail? My question to you is, right, knowing that there are hurricanes that hit the area, would you be willing to relocate to southwest Florida? If that's been, hey, I've been vacationing there for years and years. This is my dream to kind of go down there if I could afford it. Would you be willing to do that um, if you had a place down there and, you know, you had you had lost it? You know, would, would you rebuild or would you just say, hey, look, it's time for me to bail? How do you handle this stuff in the face of a natural disaster? 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line we discuss in a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. So one of our texters says, Jeff, how do you answer that question? If you hadn't been blessed this time and gotten not gotten totally wiped out, would you be rebuilding in the near future? Um, well, I, I I don't think I, my answer is yeah. Now, if you asked my wife, if for example, you know, she's the one that spent all the time and effort like furnishing the the condo and stuff like that. If if it had been a complete loss and she had to go through it again, would we do it? My answer would be yes, but I'd have to have an asterisk because she would have some input on that. So we got fortunate, but again, I, I I do believe that one of the things that you're going to see happen is not this year, not next year, but I think if you go down to Southwest Florida two or three years from now, you're going to see a lot of these things are going to be rebuilt. Now they might be rebuilt in a different sort of fashion. Now that's that's where it might change because there were a lot of places where you had like the the these houses that were like the wood houses that had, you know, were close to the water and had been there forever, um, when they're going to be rebuilt, if they're going to be rebuilt, it's going to be have have to be up to some of, like, the new standards and stuff, which is going to, you know, add a lot to the cost. So it, it might be a little bit different in character. But, but yeah, I, I, I don't think people are going to bail just because the hurricane hit, just because I don't think people, you know, stop living in California because, you know, you get, you know, wildfires every once in a while. But that's just me. Let's talk to Kent in O'Connor. Kent, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
5: Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking the call. Sure. Yeah, my perspective, uh, like you, uh, we have own a home down in that area, northeast Naples. We've owned it for 10 years now, and we've now gone through two of the hurricanes. Fortunately, we're far enough inland Uh, that other than some minimal uh, wind damage, we were blessed, didn't get any of the flooding. Now, as you know, that area is just gorgeous. I have no doubt most people will rebuild. There will still be strong demand for that gorgeous area, especially six months of the year. However, um, I I would be uh, terribly reluctant to rebuild If I uh, owned a place anywhere on the ocean, especially first floor, with the warming uh, water temperatures, I think it's just a matter of time when that area or a near area will be hit by another similar storm of that uh, ferociousness, if not more so. Yeah, as gorgeous as it is right on the beaches, uh, buyer beware. Um, I think we're going to see more of this down the
2: road. Well, I do. You know, And the other thing, to your point, Kent, is I, I think see, I think you're going to see people rebuild, but it, it's going to be rebuilding mm-hmm. differently. Like I was saying, I I mean, some of those, like, like yep. the old wooden house and stuff, th- that's not going to be the case. If you see rebuilding, it's going yep. to be up to the, the, the more hurricane-resistant standards and you know, and the cost is going to go up dramatically. I think that's just you're 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 not going to be yep. able to take a house and, that you could have rebuilt for a hundred thousand dollars. That just ain't going to happen. It's it's going to be a lot more than that. I think.
5: Yeah, a little bungalow along the beach, as quaint as they are and as beautiful as it is, yeah, that's not going to withstand it. You know, a taller building, uh, uh bigger standards, no doubt. Uh, it, it's just a poor shame. I feel so awful for those. Poor people right on the beach have lost everything. Just terrible.
2: Yeah, no, there's no question. Um, there, that that's that's what's going to happen. And, and again, I, I just um, one of my very good friends is is down there you know now, and actually he's helping us out with. Again, we only had some really minor stuff in the garage, just, and we're very very lucky with that. But, you know, he's telling me, he says, you drive through these neighborhoods. And again, it's just, he said, you're like, when you get down there, Jeff, you're not going to believe, you know, that the trees that are down and, and all these different types of, of things. You're just not going to believe the, the, the devastation that's here. Now, the good thing about Florida is when it comes to vegetation and stuff, it, it things grow really quickly and things like that. So I, I just, in some respects, I, I, I really want to see what this looks like. And I, I, I do know that especially a lot of properties along the beach, they're just, they're just flat out gone. And, you know, it's going to be a year or two. Some of the restaurants we would go to, I've just kind of been checking on the Internet. Oh, we're closed, we're closed, we're closed. You know, check back in January, and and we'll give you an idea as to how long we think we're going to be closed. But I think for a lot of stuff, it's just a year. But that's those are the businesses. And just like Kent was saying, my heart goes out to the people for whom – this is their, their livelihood and all that, or, you know, th- this is their, their principal residence. But I, I think there's going to be people that are—I think there's going to be people that are, I think, there's be people that are um, I, I think, still willing to go back. And I guess the, the one thing I would say is if you're one of those people that's willing to try to reason with the hurricane season, like our Jimmy Buffett uh, bumper music just did, that this— I know that there's some people who think that they can get deals. Now, I I, I don't know whether that's the case or not, and I, I don't know if it's kind of sort of being sort of a parasite if you're going down there when people have just had their homes devastated and saying, "Okay, well, we'll give you we'll give you sixty cents on the dollar." I, I don't know about that business model, but I have no doubt that that Southwest Florida is going to come back. And just like I say, people continue to. You know, if you've got the wherewithal, it's not like we say people don't live in Wisconsin because you can get tornadoes, because you you can, in fact, get tornadoes. I suspect that you're going to see a lot of rebuilding that's there, and I, I think most people are going to figure out, if they can afford it, how to do it. It's definitely going to be more expensive because just, what are the numbers I'm seeing, about 80% of the people in that area just didn't have flood insurance because it was just so prohibitively expensive. Well... All right, it's not gonna get any cheaper, that's for sure. My producer Charlie was saying, Well down in that area you're talking about southwest Florida, Naples, and Fort Myers Beach and up and down the coast, are 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 the houses built on stilts or are they just right on the on the beach? And my, my answer is it's it's both, but a lot of the older homes, the ones that got completely taken out, um, they were they were just built on the beach. Now they have since 1992, in Florida, when they had the big hurricane that, that hit the Miami area, there's there's all sorts of of new standards and they're becoming increasingly, um, and I think appropriately so. So it kind of depends on the degree of protection that you have. It sort of depends on how how new the place is that you live in. Um, but of course, on the other hand, when you have a hundred year you know flood or hurricane, it, it's it's still Mother Nature's going to take it out, but there, if you if you are building new, there's all sorts of different things that you have to do to make it much more likely that your your place is going to be able to survive. Matter of fact, I have a friend who um, had had a family home that within the last year or two he had just completely torn down and then you know rebuilt it, but they rebuilt it you know to the modern standards, and it it survived the flood where all the houses, and many of the other houses in his neighborhood, you know, didn't. So it, it just kind of depends on, you know, when the construction was. But that's why I say moving forward, there's just no question in my mind that the, that the area is going to be rebuilt, but it's going to cost a lot more because that, that's just it. So I, I really wonder what happens to some of the people that have lived in that area for decades and decades. I'm not talking about the seasonal residents. I'm just talking about who have a second home there. I'm talking about the people who've lived there for years and years and years who are now going to be faced with the idea of rebuilding. Maybe the thing was uninsured um, or if it was insured, it was probably, I guarantee you, it was underinsured. And so, you know, not everybody can come up with just huge chunks of money to do the rebuilding. And so that's That's where I think you're really going to see whatever is happening to um, whatever is going to be happening to the uh, to the the market down there. Hey, just a follow up, because this is every once in a while, there's these crime stories that catch the public's attention, especially when they first happen. And then as time goes on, we, we tend to. Forget and and this is one that at least as long as I'm doing the show we're we're, we're not going to forget until there, there's some closure of this. It was a week ago last night, so la- a week ago Monday, that you had this little remember the 12 year old girl who was murdered. Um with her with her mom her her mom was wounded her mom 46 years old it was a double shooting 5300 block of north 38th street around six o'clock at night and while the facts are still a little bit convoluted what was happening was you you had on the other side of the alley i believe you had this abandoned property and the abandoned property was a hangout spot for a bunch of area lowlifes and they'd use it as a spot to dump cars after they'd stole them and things like that so so you get the daughter and the mom come home from grocery shopping around 6 o'clock at night. It's still a little un- bit unclear what the confrontation is, but the-, the mom apparently at least says something. I think that's the impression you get. Says something to these punks that are hanging out at this uh, abandoned property about, you know, what they're doing to the neighborhood. And the response of the punks one or more of them, is to pull out their guns and, and start firing. And I'm not talking about just one shot. The last I saw, they found at least 15 shell casings, which tells me that there were probably two of them at least with semi-automatic pistols who just kind of opened up. The 12-year-old girl is, is dead, all right? This, and here's what, I'm on my soapbox now, but, but here's the thing. There are people in the community who know who did this, there's just no question. These were the people that were did this were hanging out at the at that at that vacant lot. My guess is there are a large number of people in the community who know who is responsible for the murder. And yet here we are more than a week later and there there's no arrest warrants to my knowledge that have been issued. There's certainly nobody that has been arrested in connection with this case. There's no public charging document and the press and the police coming out and saying, okay, these are the people that we're looking for in connection with the murder of this 12-year-old girl. If anybody has any information, please contact us. So it's been over a week, and at least thus far, based on what's known publicly, you know, the police— don't have enough information to identify and arrest the killers. And the challenge is, of course, like I say, you know that there's all sorts of people in that neighborhood who knew who it was that was hanging out and dumping stolen cars and hanging out at that particular property, and yet none of them have come forward as of yet. Meanwhile, you know, there's a 12-year-old girl dead and a 46-year-old lady who was wounded. If you think you're doing the neighborhood a favor By not providing the information that's going to lead to those people who murdered the 12-year-old girl getting arrested, you're not. And this is one where I don't agree with Hillary Clinton about much, but it really does take a village. It takes a village to get dangerous criminals off the street. And the fact that it's taken over a week to make arrests, and this isn't an indictment of the police or the district attorney's office, it's just... You know, people need to come forward, they need to provide information, they need to cooperate, and they need to get these murderers off the street.
1: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
2: not much politics in this hour of the program other than a, an interesting observation i i've been I'm, I'm watching all these different races that are out there and and the, the general sentiment is that I think a lot of Democrats believe that they, they sort of peaked too soon, that you, know, you had this abortion issue and pretty much nothing else, and now that's starting to, to wane, and people are starting to go back to some of the more traditional issues that they vote on, like their their pocketbooks and things like that. And again, I understand stuff can change in three weeks, but one of the most fascinating races in the country, outside of you know w- Wisconsin, is this Georgia Senate race, Herschel Walker, Herschel Walker, of course, the all-American football player from from Georgia, who was a, a huge just a huge celebrity, endorsed early on by by Donald Trump. Matter of fact, Herschel Walker played football for a, a team in the um, the USFL that that Donald Trump owned back back in the '80s. So they've been close all along. And and Donald Trump came out and endorsed Herschel Walker early on, and Republicans decided that they weren't they really weren't going to run a strong candidate against Herschel Walker even though Herschel Walker has some some baggage i think that would be fair to say so walker is running for senate and and he has had literally everything thrown uh, against him and i just he he's um there, there's issues i mean he's pro life and there's a former girlfriend who's saying that you know she paid for his abortion and stuff i mean it's really it's it's really kind of the stuff that soap operas and things are made of, and it's coming out in the context of a political race. You would think that a lot of this stuff would just absolutely, completely, totally doom a campaign, um, but but it's not. He's running against the incumbent senator who won in that, that runoff to finish a, a term. Um, I think it's Ralph Warnock, who's, who's a, a minister who has all sorts of baggage him, himself but you know the, the stuff against walker and walker is just he's been the subject of just you name it they they've gone against him with it and it's one of those things that if there was ever a situation where you would just expect a candidate to just be blown away by negative publicity and things like that has it happened the the new poll that's out that i'm looking at has has walker and warnock dead even tied there's one other one that came out today that has uh, Walker trailing by two within the within again the margin of error. It is just amazing that this particular race is is this close given everything that's going on. Meanwhile, you've got the Republican governor of Georgia, Kemp, who you know drew the. Displeasure of the of Donald Trump when he kind of refused to go along with a lot of the election stolen stuff in Georgia. Um, Kemp, who's running against Stacey Abrams, uh, Kemp is is pulling away. I mean, the new poll numbers—if you believe poll numbers—and I understand people are skeptical, but you know, Kemp is showing margins of six and seven points. Margins kind of like Ron Johnson is starting to run up over Mandela Barnes, but that this this seat, the Warnock uh, Herschel Walker race, I. I've been saying this all along. I'm not going to be surprised at all if if Walker ends up winning. And if Walker does win, that's going to be a huge step for the Republicans in terms of retaking control of the Senate. But right now, the latest poll has that race just in a dead tie three weeks before the election. All right, let's switch gears. Washington Post story. What age should you give a kid their first phone? Now, I I understand that whenever I have this conversation, I risk, risk sounding like a dinosaur, but when I grew up, Um, there there were not cell phones. There were landline phones, and there were pay phones, and this was before Al Gore invented the internet, and it was before, you know, cable TV made the huge splash that it did, and it was before everybody walked around with laptop computers and things like that. So, I mean, I I grew up the old-fashioned way, which was, you had a landline phone, and you had, like, one phone number in your house, so that if, my mom or dad was on the phone, I, I couldn't be on the phone at the same time. I didn't have my like my own number. And if I was out and I needed to be picked up or something, I had to go to a pay phone and I had to put a dime or later on a quarter into the pay phone and I had to make the call and say, hey, the practice ended early, can you come pick me up? Things like that. So the dynamic has changed, and I know we don't have landlines anymore, at least most people don't. I know pay phones are a complete and total thing of the past, and I understand that it is important to communicate, you know, for kids to be able to communicate. At the same time, at the same time, there is, I think, always this question mark about when do you really need to have that, that phone that's around. I mean, do you need do you need to give a six- or seven-year-old a phone? Is there really a chance that a six- or seven-year-old is going to be in a situation where th- there's going to be an emergency where they're going to have to call home? Uh, I mean, are, 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 aren't they always going to be with, like, other adults or something like that who would be in the position to, to call you if they needed to do so? So anyhow, Washington Post says, what age should you give a kid, their first phone. Uh, Then it goes on to say, there's no one magical age when all tweens or teens are ready for a smartphone. Each child develops at a different pace and comes with their own personalities and struggles. Parents also have different ideas on what's appropriate for their family. But let us tee this up. What is the ideal age to give your child their first phone? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. All right. The ideal age, when do you give your kid the first phone and why? We discuss in just a moment. Gina Della was in our studios today. Hadn't seen her for a bit. She's a delightful lady. All right. So the question is, when do you give your kid your first phone? Their first phone. Jeff, we gave our children cell phones when they went to high school. Between sports, band, clubs, and going to their friends' houses, we felt this was the time they needed a cell phone. Without pay phones at the schools now, they needed to be able to contact us to let us know when it was time to pick them up or then they were going to be late. Of course, when they started driving, it was an absolute must. So, okay, mom and dad say high school. So, what's that, around 14 or 15? Um, Okay. Let's see. Jeff, um again, my kids didn't get cell phones until they were in high school, or in the case of my girls, then still in middle school they started doing babysitting. I'm hoping my future grandkids someday are treated similarly, but I wouldn't be surprised if I if they got them sooner than their folks did. Jeff, our daughter is in sixth grade, and she is one of three girls in her class who do not have a cell phone. We are going to give her one next year when she goes to middle school, um, as then she will be getting home prior to my wife getting home from work. Maguana go starts middle school in seventh grade. I feel this makes the most sense. It'll be the first time she could be home by herself. Jeff, my daughter got hers at 12, Because she was babysitting. Jeff, we broke down and got all three boys' phones, 15, 11, and 8, going to be 9 next month. And my wife has a parental app downloaded on all their phones that actually controls their use. That is a must-have. Okay, a 9-year-old, huh? Um, Interesting. All right, 855-616-1620. Let's start with Bob in Richfield. Bob, good afternoon. When do you give a kid a phone?
6: Good afternoon, Jeff. Our son was pressuring us probably from fourth grade on. Wanted a phone, wanted a phone. And we never thought there was a reason. Well, when he was about 12 and in seventh grade, he was at football practice, and uh, we had a carpool set up. And he wasn't coming home, and he wasn't coming home. And finally he called from a number I didn't know. I almost didn't take it. And said, hey, Dad, you know, so-and-so's parents never came to pick us up. So I'm like, oh, geez. All right, well got in the car and drove 20 minutes to grab him. So at that point we decided, okay, instead of borrowing a phone from a stranger, that could go bad. We got him a phone and that was about 12 years old, but the phone that we got him had no internet on it. It was just for calling. Right. And that's, so that was about 12 years old when we did that.
2: Okay. Um, but, but again, it's, it's not a smartphone. It's just, it's just like an old fashioned phone. You you can make the calls and that's it. It was, (laughs) yeah.
6: At that time, yeah it was a it was a, I think a flip phone that he could just call out, and uh, if something happened where they got stranded, um, he could call us and we could go pick him up and that was that was the only time because he played all sports right, and there's no pay phones, in yeah. the schools and there was no pay phones outside at the football field, so we had to go grab him and after that, we thought, okay, well, now maybe it 's time, but it 's just a phone,
2: yeah, know thanks to call that's it because again you you're right there there's no pay phones anymore, so um, and in that situation, I guess he, he's not around the, the adults. Um, seventh grade. Okay. Lamar, who's calling us from Orlando, Florida. Hi, Lamar.
7: Hey, Jeff. Um, so two 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 perspectives. One, as a parent, I didn't get my daughter a cell phone until she started driving. Of course, she didn't like that in high school. Yeah. It, it just wasn't necessary. There's, no, every, there's phones all over the schools. She was never any place that, you know, that I would take her that there wasn't a phone to communicate. Um and driving obviously you, you could be sure. in spots that she couldn't and I, and then it wasn't a, it wasn't a smartphone because that I I, I I talked for a little bit just I thought smartphones are more of a hassle than they are the convenience and I think that it's just not worth the the cost you know I'm paying you know five hundred to a thousand dollars for a phone plus the monthly plans it just wasn't worth the, the the cost and so and it wasn't practical and it wasn't necessary yeah and so but driving is a whole different conversation
2: yeah so so fifteen sixteen you thought was appropriate.
7: Yeah, but specifically driving. If she didn't get her license, I wasn't going to get her a phone. It wasn't.
2: Oh. <laughs> she must not have loved you, Lamar. Or she might have loved you, but she must not have liked she you when like you made that, that decision. <laughs> yeah. No Thanks for calling. Yeah. see, that, you know, it's interesting. So I'm getting texts from people who, who say, well, you know, we don't think that there's any problem with as young as seven. And the argument is, well, you know, they they might need, what about the case of an emergency? And I guess what I'm having trouble wrestling with is, is there... I know Is there really going to be a situation where, for example, somebody who's seven or eight is going to be in an, in an unattended you know, situation there? I mean, aren't there always going to be parents that are with them? I mean, if you're, if you're at a birthday party or something, you're at the birthday party that's being sponsored by, that there's going to be some parent who's going to be able to reach out. I guess I, other than in theory, I mean, maybe something can happen. Does that really happen in, in reality? Let's talk to Jack in Caledonia. Jack, you're on WTMJ.
8: Yeah, it is all about uh, the responsibility of the child. You know, if they're responsible at age 9, they are responsible at 18. You know, and they, with an iPhone, they can just get into a lot of trouble on, with the apps. I like the idea of just giving them a phone that they can make calls with. You know, right. Seems to be the right thing to do.
2: So, what's a, what? Know. What do you think is the right age? And I understand it varies from kid to kid. But if, as a general rule, what would you think would be? What would you think would be too young?
8: Yeah. Oh well. Too too young. It'd be you know five six years old or so when they can barely talk to begin with. Yeah. Him. But um, you know, I have grandkids and uh, they're middle aged school and they and they're getting their phones, you know, and things. So I mean, it's just um, just another tool to use. Um, I remember when my daughter was young, we had a computer, and she learned how to type on it, and, you know, she types like a banshee now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> right.
8: You know, but, but you know, it's just, you know, just types, you know, very, very quick and efficient, and it was something that she learned because she was on, you know, the the the, the social media apps with her, with, her, with her friends, you know, and so she just learned how to type fast on that, and so that was a nice nice yeah. reason to use. You know, a cell phone is just another tool, you know, to 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 have your kids learn how to use. You know, and, and the thing is, yeah, there are issues with it, um, but there's hopefully more good than um, bad that comes out of it.
2: Yeah, I guess I think. See, that that's interesting. I mean, I, I guess it see, it's like anything. You say, okay, well, she learned. I because I'm hearing. Okay, and again, it depends on what the age of your granddaughter was. I'm hearing, okay, well, she's using this, and, and she's using the social media apps and stuff. And I, I don't mean to sound like that old fogey, but I'm going, huh? That depending again on the age, I, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a good thing because kids can, especially if you have younger kids, you you, you just got to watch that. The, it is the wild wild west that's out there on on the internet. To me, the reason to give somebody a cell phone is because you want to communicate in the case of, of emergencies. The situation, one of our callers was talking about that, hey, somebody's parent didn't show up and you're at the football field, that, that's that's it. To give somebody the cell phone so they can email their 7th their or 8th grade buddies or, you know, surf the internet, God forbid, you know, that's, to me, I think that's something that, that comes later. If this were me, I mean, I, I could see middle school, I mean, 7th and 8th grade, I think that's about the right time, and then then certainly with all sorts of parental controls on the thing, and then you start to expand it as you get into high school. And I mean, I get the idea of when people are, are driving and things like that. Jeff, um, let's see. Um uh, my son is 11 and uses an old iPhone in which he can, where he can text other iPhones and FaceTime me, but he has to have um, Wi-Fi access on that. Jeff, I think it should be against the law for someone eight, under 18 to have a smartphone. If you notice, school shootings increased massively when social media came into the picture. Um, it's some of these trouble kids send out messages; they think the whole world is watching them. Yeah, that—that that is. Why, if you're a parent and you're going to make the decision to give your kid a a smartphone, I think you also have to understand that maybe whether it's the parental controls or there's some you know responsibility. Jeff, a bonus of having phones with kids that are younger than you, you can start an app and track their every movement. Yeah there there is there is that like find my iPhone, so you can see where people are. No doubt about that. Let's talk to uh, Joe and Jackson. Joe, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, how are you doing? Good. What, what's too young, or what's the appropriate age?
7: I think, I think that one of the callers hit it on the head. Um, uh, I think it was Lamar who said that, um, you know, maybe a flip phone or something like that. I, I forgot who said it, but the bottom line is, is I don't think there is a too young of age if it's just calling and texting. The problem comes in when you're talking about these smartphones, and having four children who, are, who have gone through their teenage years I can tell you that there are two areas of concern that every parent should have in regard to smartphones. One is the content that is going on with these uh, social media sites, Mm -hmm. and the second thing is what what it does to their discipline, what it does to their focus in regard to homework and things like that. Because they these social media companies, they literally have people that they hire on to figure out ways to maximize dopamine releases and stuff like that. I mean, this is actually a conversation that they have and we have to be aware as parents that, that this is our children are targeted. And I have what I've, what I've experienced as a parent is that I've looked for these, these um, apps and stuff like that, that allow a parental control and stuff. And I don't know if, you know, when parents, put trust in that. I don't know what they experienced, what I experienced, but my children have friends at school and all kinds of people that they go to and figure out workarounds. There are workarounds to every single one of these parental apps. There is nothing that iPhone or or Samsung or anybody has put out that just gives a solid ability that if I want my children between 6 and 8 p.m. to be focusing on homework, it allows me to shut their phone down. There is nothing like that. And I think there's a reason that that these phone companies allow for that. They, you know, it, these these social media companies, they don't want restrictions on children who are their prime targets. So, yeah. in regard to what age, I would say if it's just a flip phone, if it's just calling and texting, as young as you want to. But when it comes to smartphones, my God, um, it, it, I don't I don't even know how to answer that. There has to be a change in the industry, quite honestly.
2: Yeah, got it. Hey, thanks for the call, Drew. Well, you know, I I guess I look at this and I, I think middle school is about the right time for that emergency sort of situation and again I, I like the idea that you're just then it's a call as far as the smartphones go i you know i to me I, I think that that's one where you're talking about again when the kid starts driving or or something like that and and even then it just what well, we all see it we go out to do this – you know go go into you know go into a restaurant nowadays um like a family restaurant where there's kids and stuff. You know, and you, you'll see the teenagers, and it's no different than the adults. You know, people just sit there on their cell phones the, the entire time. They're not interacting with each other. They're not talking to people. They're just—who you know, knows who they're communicating with or what they're doing on the cell phones. It, it really is this this kind of addiction that's there, and there's lots of great stuff that comes with cell phones. But at the same time, when it comes to kids, I, I think this is just something else. Just like, Just like you wouldn't let your 15-year-old kid sit down and watch— Semi, you know, hard R or X rated slasher movies around Halloween, I don't think you probably wouldn't let them just roam the internet um, unsupervised. And if you do, you know, don't be surprised if bad things happen. So, Mike, in our, our new studios here at The Avenue in downtown Milwaukee, we have actually, you know, my, my wife and a couple friends were down here mm-hmm. yesterday, and it, it's actually the studio, I, I like it quite a bit. Um, we took a couple pictures. If you follow me on Facebook, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 But there's one with my wife and I. And a number of the comments were, the wall behind me, we've got one wall which is pretty much all glass. We've got another wall where my producer looks at me that's a lot of glass. And then there's a wall with like a bank of TVs. And then there's this one wall that's got nothing on it. When, when some of the textures were like, you don't have any decorations on that one wall. It's like, huh, I hadn't, hadn't really noticed it because my back is always to it. But um, in any event, we're watching, the, we're watching the, the TV, and on pops a thing saying that Kyle Rittenhouse, remember Kyle Rittenhouse mm-hmm. from Kenosha fame? He's starting his own YouTube channel about guns,
3: whatever yeah. that means.
2: Now, and, and my question to you was, how do you make money doing this? Because obviously he's doing it to make money.
3: You Well, just like if you had a podcast or a TV show or anything like that, you start the channel, you hope people subscribe, and then you hire a company or an agent to then go out and sell your product. So that's sometimes how it happens. Now, if you're on the level of fame of a Kardashian or something like that, those advertisers then are going to you to do that. But initially, yeah, you start it. You get some subscribers. And- okay, uh, let me back up this.
2: I'm Kyle Rittenhouse. Mm-hmm. I've decided I'm going to start a YouTube channel about guns, whatever the hell that means. <laughs> and then I have to go out and I- I'm going to find subscribers. So how do I find these subscribers in the first place?
3: They find you. So you you go on YouTube, basically you sign up, Jeff.wagner, yeah. and you turn your webcam on and you start filming yourself, and that's how you that's how you do that. And okay. then you hope people find, find you. Find
2: you and then subscribe. I, so do I, do I get to decide how much money I'm going to charge to, for these subscribers, or no?
3: That's a okay. great question. Okay. I I, I I think the subscriptions, unless you're a premium content creator... A Kardashian, okay. Yes, the subscription is free. The advertisers are the ones that pay you to okay. then advertise during the okay, show. Okay, so I am Kyle Rittenhouse. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start
2: talking about guns. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hope that a whole bunch of people are interested in hearing me talk about guns. <clears throat> and then I'm going to accumulate these subscribers. Then I'm going to find an agent who's then going to go out and try to sell
3: my podcast to advertisers. That's how it works. Yes. And like up set up showcases like for you to go out and meet said people, all those types of things. So yeah, it's basically just like being a on on reality television, maybe I don't know how how best to describe it, but yeah, it's basically how the process works. Okay. God's way of telling you that you have too much money <laughs>
2: would be if if you were an advertiser who wanted to sponsor the Kyle Rittenhouse podcast or YouTube channel or whatever. That would just that's just my thought on this particular thing. Yeah, I, yeah, that, that, that's interesting. I, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a word for it. I mean, I, I just look, and I, I, under, I never, I try never to tell people how to spend their money and stuff, but I'm sitting there thinking, okay, what. What could Kyle Rittenhouse possibly – again, I don't care how you feel Mm -hmm. about that case, about the verdict. Was he guilty or was he not guilty or or whatever? What what about life could Kyle Rittenhouse possibly have to offer that would be worth your time? And if you're an advertiser – worth your your money. I mean, who, I, this is what I want to do. I want to associate myself. I want to be at, I want to be, I want to, I should go, let, let's go
3: talk to the folks at Good Karma. We want to like sponsor the Kyle Rittenhouse. I don't think so. Well, that's a great point you make because uh, I have not looked up YouTube channels about guns in the second amendment. I'm assuming there's, there's probably a couple of them. So when you're starting out, you have to figure out what sets me apart from the fifty thousand yeah. other people who are doing the same exact sure. thing, and beyond the having the name recognition of a Kyle Rittenhouse, I, I, I'm not going to say I'm interested to see what he does because I am not. But I, I right, and wonder it's not necessarily a do.
2: positive recognition either. I mean, it's like okay, and it could be uh, infamy. Well, right. Well, that's it. And, you know that that's kind of. Well, I mean, it's the thing with I, I get like everybody has a podcast nowadays, and it's like okay, how do you if you want to do a podcast, how do you distinguish your podcast from the millions of other podcasts that are out there and to to attract an audience. And I guess that's always a challenge.
3: Yeah, well, it's that. And then it's also like, how dedicated do you want to be to doing this? You know, being able to speak with younger people, college-aged, uh, aspiring broadcasters. You know, everyone wants to do a podcast. Everyone wants to be on the radio and take your job, Jeff. You know? And the, the, the question I always have is, have you ever tried to you know, make your list of topics you want to talk about, turn your phone timer on, flip it over, start talking about it. Let me know when you're done because you, you know, you have to have a real passion about the things that you're doing. It's not just, as you mentioned, have a podcast. Well, well, right. and, then- and
2: you have to be able to sustain it. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that I've, I've always, I thought about just, just what I do daily, you know, for, you know, 27 years, full or part-time. It's, it's not there's really really talented people and what i always say about for example you know spoken word radio talk radio is anybody who's articulate you know has has a couple things that they're passionate about and you could do a couple great hours of talk radio pick the the, the two or three things that you're most passionate about and 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 it'll be great but the the problem then is there's the, that covers you for the 12 o'clock hour and the 1 o'clock hour. Then there's the 2 o'clock hour, and then there's Tuesday, and then there's Wednesday, and then there's Thursday. And it's why I, I have so much respect for people who have had longevity in this industry. There, there have been... In all the years I've been doing this, there have been really, really talented people um, who who came up. I'm Al Franken. Forget the politics. Al Franken's a talented, funny guy. Janine uh, Garofalo, you know, who who did shows on on um, uh, Air America, the liberal thing, and, and they burned out after a while because even with a even with a, a staff of producers and writers and stuff, they couldn't sustain three hours a day, five days a week because it just got. It it got to be that challenging. So yeah, it's like, okay, after the first hour talking about guns, what do you what does Kyle Rittenhouse talk about?
3: Exactly. And that's what's gonna I guess be his challenge. And, and you know, who knows? Maybe he it becomes a, a hub for other content creators to publish their stuff because they're gonna piggyback off of people know who Kyle Rittenhouse is. No one knows who, for example, Mike Spaulding is, maybe I will connect with Kyle Rittenhouse. I'm regretting saying this on the air as I say the words. Right, No, I understand. To, to, to You know, to do it, so maybe that's an avenue for him. But, yeah, I mean, just getting the sense, hearing his interviews, watching all the content that he had before in terms of the trial and the interviews afterwards, I I don't know. It doesn't seem like he has the thing, as they say. Well, you, right, exactly. Plus,
2: I mean, plus he was, you know, 17-year-old. I mean, it, it's... It, it, not everybody can be a daily broadcaster, too. That—that's the other thing. There is a degree of, uh, of of talent and experience and stuff that goes into it, especially if you're going to sustain something like that. But in any event, he's. Some people are saying that once you get five thousand subscribers, YouTube pays you. I, I don't. And maybe that's in addition to the, um, maybe that's in addition to the advertisers.
3: Sure, no, it's you, YouTube like monetizes you because then they can they use you. It also like opens up different things you can then use like music that has been trademarked and stuff like that. So you get certain perks, but you got to go through a long time of one subscriber, two subscribers, three subscribers, on and on and on. It takes a long, you know, you got to be on the grind. And I just. I don't know what Kyle Rittenhouse would have to contribute to society that people would want to but we Well, we'll, but I say
2: that about a lot of stuff. Yep, (laughs) you're absolutely right. I could be proved (laughs) wrong. I say that about a lot of stuff. In any event, that was Kyle Rittenhouse considering starting his own YouTube channel. When we come back, why are you yelling at the ref? Stick around. My niece and my nephew uh, played played soccer, you know, like club-level soccer and then high school soccer. At the, my niece did. My, my nephew stopped, I think, after eighth grade or something like that. And we'd, because, you know, I like to think I'm a good uncle, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd go to the games. And I remember going to some of these games and I was always amazed. Now, you're talking about kids. And I was always amazed at some of the stuff that would come out of the stands, out of the, from the adults that was directed at the the officials. And, Generally speaking, when you go to these soccer games, the the officials were like high school kids. You know, I mean, if you're if it's if it's a seventh grade club soccer team, the official is is more likely than not it's it's some it's a high school kid who maybe you know plays on the high school soccer team or or whatever who's out there. And I'm listening to some of these parents just scream at I, one in particular was out in Pewaukee and they just screaming at this this young lady who's. And I mean, I don't know if she was making all the right calls or not, but it, it's it's a kid's soccer game, for goodness sakes. I mean, it's not like you're playing for professional contracts or anything like that. And I just always, you know, you want to kind of go up and say, hey, buddy, you know, really not knock this off. And I'm always kind of sensitive to that because when I was a kid growing up to make extra money, like when I was in, uh, I, I, used to, I used to umpire little league baseball games. And I think this is probably when I was early in high school. And you'd, you know, you'd be umpiring, you know, baseball games involving like fifth and sixth grade and stuff like that and you'd have you'd have these parents that were in the stands that would be screaming about stuff and you'd kind of want to say really i mean okay and maybe i'll admit maybe maybe i got the call wrong i don't know but you're you're yelling at me about this well, there was a story in the local newspaper the other day that caught my attention. Wisconsin high school sports are in jeopardy as rising verbal abuse contributes to a shortage of referees. Now, this is this is talking about high school, so it's it's that, that one step up from what I'm talking about. But if I'm seeing this in seventh-grade club soccer, I can only imagine what it's like on the high school level. Here's what they're saying. They say that, uh, according to the WIAA, Soccer, volleyball, hockey, basketball, and softball have all seen the number of available officials drop by more than 30%. Part of it is because of of COVID, but they're saying more and more of it is because of increasingly abusive fan behavior. That a a lot of the referees are just saying, we're not going to do this. It's life. Life is too short to to put up with with this. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. We we've we've just got a couple minutes, but for those of you who who go to kids sporting events, have you noticed it getting worse with people in the stands feeling compelled to, to yell at the, the referees, whether they're adult referees or whether they're, like, again, kids that are refereeing younger kids' games? And, and, and how do you deal with that if you're the fan in the stand when you hear the leather lung that's screaming at the official? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. My poor time management skills. I wish have left a little more time for this topic. Troy in Rhinelander. Troy, good afternoon.
9: Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call.
2: Yes, sir. My note um, says you're a ref. Says,
9: yep. Uh, I've been a licensed official for like 20 some years, and as a an older person, I think I kind of gotten used to the way people behave you've learned to really appreciate those that just come because we do not as officials we really don't care who wins we're just trying to call a game right uh because the the game can't take place without us right and so i as as i age i think i'm kind of getting used to it my son now second generation he's like 33 he says it is getting worse um but as i told the screener i had a really quick uh, a quick example of something, last year I was officiating a freshman game, and there was a f- father who was yelling, like, the first half. He was just all, all over everybody. And so at the end, when the game was over, like 10 or 15 minutes, we happened to be walking down the hallway by the concessions, and I just I just called him out and I said, hey, I was just curious, you know, were we as bad as, as you came across? And uh, he goes, uh, no, I was just fired up at my son, and I was just trying to get him, uh, <laughs> you know, his head out of his tail and just try to get him going, and I thought, ah, you know, I confronted you, and you still can't even tell the truth. So that's just my little story. But I, I, I know one thing: as I told this screener, it is not getting better. So
2: yeah, no, I think that, it's, I'll let you go. No, thanks to go. It, it is. It, it is disappointing. I'm sorry, we've got lots of calls on the line. Maybe we'll revisit this at some point in time, including number of calls from referees who all say it, it's not getting better, it's getting worse. And I, I, the the thing is, it, it's this complete and total lack of perspective that's there, because at the end of the day, it's high school sports. And and let's look, and I I understand you want your kid to play well, and I understand you want your team to win, but this is especially... For a lot of the the levels, you know, your your kids aren't going to go on to get get college scholarships, playing basketball and things like that. In a particular call, and and look, I I appreciate I go to major league baseball games. I think the quality of umpiring, for example, is awful. I I can't, but. And you can get frustrated over certain calls, and that's not the point. It's it's more like when you have these people that are just relentlessly riding these these referees who aren't making very much money for coming out and doing it. And as the story in the paper said, and our last caller just alluded to, you know, if you don't have referees, that, then it's pretty much just a practice. That you know, that's that that's kind of what's out there. And and yet people still are once again showing the impulse control of fruit flies.